Let's open our Bibles now, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3. Tonight we'll consider verses 16 through 19 as we continue with Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, but understanding that this prayer also has an, an overflow to us as well, specifically made to the Ephesians, or to God for the Ephesians, but I believe that Paul had the rest of us in mind as well. Now tonight we'll study the petition itself, but the prayer can be divided into three parts. The last, the, the last week we studied the first of these three parts, in the first part, Paul expresses his respect or the respect that is due to God the Father. He opens the prayer by praying to the Father, and he expresses the appropriate respect to the Father as he opens this prayer. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So as we begin this prayer, Paul, by his very posture, is recognizing the one to whom he is speaking the Heavenly Father. And as we finished up last time, we spent just a little bit of time in the Sermon on the Mount in the so-called Lord's Prayer, or the entitled Lord's Prayer, um, to, to see how our Lord himself prescribed that his disciples pray. We mentioned, and it's worth mentioning again ever so briefly, with, with only one exception in the New Testament that I'm aware of, all prayers are directed to our Father. Now, in, in the Upper Room Discourse, our Lord tells his disciples, if you ask me anything in my name, then I, I will do it. So there's that one reference to praying to Jesus. But the norm seems to be to address our prayers to the Heavenly Father in the name of the Son under the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, if someone uh, desires to address a prayer to Jesus, I don't think that's sinful in any way. It's just we, we were talking about the prescription. And when we look at the, not only the description, but the prescription of prayers in the New Testament, it seems as though... In general, their, their address to our Heavenly Father. So the prayer, again, is divided into three parts. First, Paul expresses the respect that is due to God in verses 14 and 15. Second, the section will begin tonight. The petition itself is expressed in verses 16 through 19. And then finally, God will be praised in verses 20 through 21. Now, the handout that you received comes from Dr. Harold Honer's commentary, incredible commentary on Ephesians. And this information was a little too much to put on any one individual slide. If I would have done that, you, couldn't have, you wouldn't have been able to see it in the back. So I went ahead and borrowed this from Dr. Honer, and I'm giving it to you in the same form that he has in his very fine text. This, the request itself is that he might grant you to be strengthened in the inner man. That's going to be in chapter 3, verse 16. That's going to be our passage for tonight. But there will be a result from that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, and that's verses, verse 17 of chapter 3. There's a purpose to that. You see, all these are subordinate to one another. There's a purpose to that, so you might be able to comprehend in chapter 3, verse 18. The result of that is so you would know Christ's love in chapter 3, verse 19. And then finally, there's a purpose to that. So all these are subordinate. That's why they're in this, uh, they are offset in this way. There's a final purpose so that you might be filled up to all the fullness of God. And actually, there's an implied result to that too, so that we might grow with, with, in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and become mature or maturing believers. But that's not stated, so we'll leave that out. Now, verse 16, our passage for tonight. This is the request itself, or the petition itself, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Technically speaking, the request that Paul is making is found in the last half of chapter 16, that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. But first, Paul introduces this petition by saying this, that he might grant you, 
according to the riches of his glory. We could also translate that, that he might grant you according to the wealth of his glory. Because this isn't any one particular kind of riches. This is the entirety of something. And so that's why many prefer to translate this wealth. So Paul begins this prayer after addressing the Heavenly Father, after expressing the appropriate worship to the Father. And we see that by his posture. He begins by asking that God might give the Ephesian believers and us by extension, the Ephesian believers and us by extension, the request that is to follow. I want to say just one thing about that. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we don't want to we don't want to overthink things and say, well, this is just a prayer that Paul had for the believers at Ephesus. Listen, it wouldn't have been recorded and made part of the scriptures if it didn't have some overflow of application to you and to me as well. So if this will help you to really focus and concentrate, concentrate as if Paul is praying this prayer for you personally. Insert your name in there where the you's are. And that, I think, will help us quite a bit. But he begins by asking that God may give the Ephesian believers and us by extension the request that he's about to make. And he asks that God would grant the request according to the wealth or the riches of his glory. In other words, another way to put this, or a way that we could summarize this phrase, the wealth of his glory, is to, is to understand that Paul is asking that this prayer be answered in accordance, in accordance with the entirety of God's infinite perfections. There's another way to put this. Paul could have said, or maybe something like this, he could have said, Father, in, in accordance with who you are, in accordance with who and what you are, in accordance with your perfection, in accordance with your essence, I would like for you to answer this prayer. So that, that's another way of saying, in, according to the riches or the wealth of his glory. So because of who God is, because of his infinite perfections, and Paul could have mentioned a lot of things, and sometimes people whose prayers are recorded in the scriptures, that happens. O magnificent Father, O sovereign Father, O loving Father, O, o infinite Father, O omnipotent Father, Almighty God. You see, sometimes we do that in our prayers, and it's perfectly, it's very legitimate, and probably ought to be done more often than we do, recognizing the very attributes, the infinite perfections of God through which he's going to answer these prayers. For example, if we're praying for someone to be healed from a cancer that, humanly speaking, doesn't look like it's going to be healed, or there's very little possibility, or maybe there's no possibility from a human standpoint, we may want to begin our prayer, O omnipotent God, recognizing that he is powerful enough to get the job done. Just in, in the way we address our Father, and certainly or we, could, we could say, Oh, Heavenly Father, I recognize that you are all-powerful. Or I recognize that you're all-knowing. You see the point? It's a recognition of some attribute of God. But what Paul does here, he's recognizing the entirety of God's infinite perfections as he asks this special request for not only the Ephesian believers, but I believe for you and me as well. And I'll show you why in just a moment. You'll see this is going to be so exciting when we finally come to grips with how we are empowered as Christians and our responsibility to live consistently with that. Now, the request itself. The request is that we might be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Now, that's a, it's a bit cumbersome, but that's the request itself. 
And what we need to do is, is kind of pull that out. That's why I gave you this chart so you can see the structure. We, can, we need to pull the request itself out and not get so wrapped up in the result and purpose clauses right now that we miss the beauty of what Paul is requesting. He is requesting that these Ephesian believers, these believers and us too, that have just been presented with this incredible body of truth. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, this very long sentence that we concluded from, we concluded from that that the Father is worthy to be praised, the Son is worthy to be praised, the Holy Spirit is worthy to be praised, and finally God himself in his entirety and his trinity is worthy to be praised. We saw in chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God who is rich in mercy, we saw that. We saw that we were saved by grace through faith. We, we realized that we're part of a corporate body now. We're all saved the same way. We got there the same way, so therefore we should function in unity. We were introduced to this mystery doctrine that in the body of Christ there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All this incredible truth. Now Paul wants us to do something with it. He doesn't just want us to know it. Sometimes people, sometimes people who haven't really thought it through sometimes will say that there's a contradiction between James's message in the epistle of James and Paul's writings. Much as I appreciate much of what Martin Luther did, that was one of the mistakes that he made. Is, is he didn't, I don't think he truly understood James. I think he understood Paul. But I don't think he really understood what James was doing in his, uh, in his epistle. But we studied James, and one of the things that we know James was doing was he was calling upon us to act and live consistently with not only who we are, but what we say we believe. Because James is saying, listen, if you just believe something, or you say you believe something, and you don't act consistently with it, then you're deluding yourselves. And it's bad enough to be deluded by someone else. It's terrible when you're self-deluded. Now, what Paul's going to do, he's going to pick up on that, and he's going to pray for us. Remember, the whole idea is that we would have unity. He's going to pray, pray for us so that we would be strengthened with power by means of his Holy Spirit in the inner man so that we could accomplish this. The implication being, without the Holy Spirit's ministry... It ain't going to happen. We can try all day long by means of the flesh to love one another and to function in unity. But without the Spirit's ministry, it's going to come across as phony. As phony. And so many in the Christian community today, I believe, at least in my observation, are doing everything they can under their own energy and their own ingenuity and perhaps even some programs that they're trying to implement to, to develop unity within the church, to develop love between believer and believer, that quite frankly, it comes across as phony. I read these things in, in journals and on websites and people that and emails that I get from different pastors around the country, and they have these, these ideas for programs of how to help people to get along. You know, and, and how to set up this group to where we can make sure this group can, has develops friends within the church and and, you know, all these things have some validity, provided they're done under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But they have zero validity as a program in and of themselves, if it's just a program that's in and of the flesh. And so Paul is going to say here, if we're going to have unity in the church, not just the local church, but the church universal, it's got to be more than just our human effort to do it. So he asks that we might be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now, that's the core of the request. Paul was fully aware, as aware as anybody of his day was, that there would be no unity in the church at Ephesus or in the body of Christ at large without 
divine enablement. We cannot expect to live a life that pleases God without divine enablement, without God's help. Now that can be, maybe for some of us, a little bit humbling. Or at least on the surface it could be humbling. But it also can be very liberating. When we finally come to grips with this incredible New Testament truth, and I think the truth was there in the Old Testament as well, but it's fully developed in the New Testament. When we finally come to grips with the, the reality that we are completely and totally incapable in and of ourselves, both to save ourselves initially from the penalty of sin and to live a life that pleases God, when we realize that we're totally and completely incapable of doing that on our own, first, that's humbling. Some people would say it's humiliating, but I would say it's humbling. And then it's liberating because we can quit trying. Have you ever talked to someone who's trying to work their way to heaven? Not, not speaking about the Christian way of life now, but I'm talking about the initial salvation that we have. Have you ever talked to somebody that's trying to work their way to heaven? And you say, well, are you going to heaven? Well, I don't know. I, I talked to a, a, a relative of mine one time in the past at the kitchen table, and I asked him, I said, you know, are you going to go to heaven when you die? He says, well, I hope so. I said, well, why would you think that you would? Well, I've taught Sunday school at my church for over 30 years. I said, well, that's great. Have you ever trusted Christ? And he changed the subject. Ah, that's not what I wanted to hear. You see, he was striving to work hard enough on his own energy, apart from God, to reach God. And we know that that can't be done. Paul's already made that clear. We're saved by grace through faith, apart from works. But in the same way, once people are saved, so many Christians want to try to please God, apart from God's enabling power. And that can't be done either. So the core of the request is that they might be strengthened with power through his spirit, through the Holy Spirit. Spirit. This can be very liberating. At one level, it is humbling because most of us want to do things our way with as literal interference from outside sources as possible. At least I'm that way, generally speaking. I like to do things my way. You are, too. We like to do things our way, and we don't want anybody to interfere with it. Thank you very much. And deep down, we don't want really any help. And I think the reason, deep, I'm no psychologist, no certainly no psychiatrist, but I do know human nature, at least somewhat. And I think deep down we want to do things without anybody else's help. I'm talking about on a human level right now. Because if something gets accomplished, deep down now, deep down, I want to take all the credit for it. I don't want to have to share that. And if somebody else helped me with it, when I stand up and get the Academy Award, I've got a whole list of people that I've got to thank. It would be really, it really kind of be refreshing one day if somebody got up there and said, I just want to thank myself. I'm a great actor. My mama didn't help me. My daddy didn't help me. Everybody discouraged me. Thank you very much. You know, it's not going to happen uh, because you know what? There aren't any, there, there are people, there, that kind of person doesn't exist. We're all where we are because somebody somewhere along the line helped us just a bit. Now, if we take that and apply it in the Christian life as well, we are where we are because God helped us. And then God sent other people to help us as well as intermediaries. So I think that's one of the reasons why this is a bit humbling to us. And it's really not restricted, like I say, to, to so-called secular activities. And I call those secular, so-called secular because really there shouldn't be a dichotomy between the secular and the sacred. Everything that we do should be a, a portion of our spiritual life. 
in reality, there's there's only one thing. There's not secular and sacred. But but if it's a reality in so-called secular areas, it's also reality in the sacred realm. The believer cannot accomplish God's purpose apart from God's power. The believer cannot accomplish God's purpose apart from God's power. This is a passive event, looking at it from our perspective. We don't strengthen ourselves. We are strengthened. Occasionally I'll go to the gym and and work out with weights, and and that's a way that I'm strengthening myself. Actually, there's still passive things that are going on inside my body the way the Lord made me. But this this is not like you're going into a spiritual gym and strengthening yourself. We don't strengthen ourselves. We are strengthened. Do you see the difference between the active and the passive there? The, the action is being performed on us. God is strengthening us. And I think that's the humbling part. As much as I would like to strengthen myself, spiritually now, and accomplish God's good without any help, can't be done. God himself must strengthen me. And God himself must strengthen you. We cannot do it on our own. And it really shouldn't be surprising, especially in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, as we've already studied it, because we didn't save ourselves, did we, initially? We didn't save ourselves. We were saved. You see, Again, you see the difference. One's an active and one's a passive. I didn't save myself. That would be an active thing. I was saved. God saved me. That's passive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to do anything about it. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ or with Christ. You see the passive nature there? He made us alive. I didn't didn't bring myself back to life. God made us alive. And the pattern here in the Christian life is the same. We don't save ourselves. It's by grace. We didn't affect our own salvation. He made us alive together with Christ. In the Christian life, we don't mature ourselves. We don't provide our own power. He does that for us. Now, we're going to play a part, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But we need to realize the passive nature here. Of course, there is a human side to the equation. For example, in salvation, there's a human side. God saves me, but he doesn't necessarily save everybody because he's put a human responsibility. We have to exercise faith. We must say yes to God and no to our own efforts. But we're saved by grace and not by our own faith. Now listen carefully. or You're going to miss a real, real important issue here. We are saved By grace, by the grace of God, not by means of our faith. It's by means of grace through faith, but not by means of our faith. Now, this is not a theological triviality. This is a critical distinction. It's a foundational distinction. And this is the way it's put in seminary class sometimes. The professor may stand up. Bob Leitner did this in a class I was in one time. He said, our faith does not save us. That's the way he began the lecture. And I know he's about as much of a free grace guy as there is living on the planet. 
I'm thinking, what does he mean? Our faith does not save us. Has he, is he out of his mind? Has he lost his mind? Is he going to now say that our works save us? No, but that's not what he did. He said our faith doesn't save us. God saves us. You see the distinction? On the basis of our faith, because we have exercised faith, that we have fulfilled the one condition, but God does the saving. Our responsibility was to exercise faith. But apart from God's saving activity, our faith means nothing. See, our faith in and of itself doesn't save us. God saves us on the basis of our faith. Now, again, that's not a theological triviality. That's extremely important because the same pattern is going to follow through after we're saved. In order to receive salvation, he's given us the one responsibility, and that is to trust him for it. But our trusting him does not save us in and of itself. We say yes to God, and then by his grace, he saves us. Now, I know this is a fine point, but you can handle this. You're theologically sophisticated enough, I think, to be able to do this. You see, sometimes people have the idea that we're, we're, our faith is in faith. That's also where people get the idea that maybe I didn't have enough faith to be saved. And this is a theological problem. Big one today. Because people are starting to dissect the nature of someone's faith. That's a mistake. How much faith does it take to be saved? Just a smidgen more than no faith at all. Because it's not the faith itself that's saving you. God, the omnipotent God, is saving you on the basis of that weak faith. Do you see? So how strong does my faith have to be? It's really irrelevant. As long as, long as I'm exercising faith in the right object. Because it's the object that's able to save. Not a, not a theological triviality. It's a crucial distinction. This is critical because we can never take credit for our own salvation. Remember how Paul ended that phrase? That lest any man should boast. If I had this incredible faith that came in and of myself, and my faith is stronger than your faith, you know, I had this great faith and you just had this little bitty faith, then I'm going to go around like a, like a banny rooster bragging for the rest of my life that I got to heaven based on this strong faith, but you've got to heaven based on this little faith. As a matter of fact, because you're not showing any works, I'm really confused whether you're saved or not anyway. It's happening. It's a big deal in the Christian community. But if we stopped and realized that it's God who saves, again, on the basis of our faith, weak faith as it is, but God's the one that saves, so, and God is equally omnipotent no matter how, who he's pulling over the cliff. I hope you see that. If you can picture it this way, this is not a perfect analogy, but it, it worked for me at one point. It says if we're hanging off a cliff by one of those branches that, that in the cartoons that always seem to be there, that the roadrunner, whoever it is, is holding on to, and then, then, then God reaches down and grabs our arm, all we do is say yes. We just say yes. It, but it's the power of the one that's reaching down and grabbing you and pulling you up that counts. Not how strong you're gripping him, because he's the one gripping you. You see, it's his power that's at, at stake here. It's his power that's at issue here, not ours. And that's going to be the same way in the Christian life as well. We are not the cause of our own salvation. We cannot brag and say, look at me, see how wonderful I am. I saved myself. No Christian should do that. There should be no arrogance or pride in Christianity anywhere. Because we didn't affect our own salvation. God saved us. Yeah, we said yes. Big whoop, as they say at Texas A&M. Big whoop. We said yes. That's great. 
All we did was receive a gift. I'm not great because I received the gift. God is great that gave me that gift. And if we, would, if, we, if we don't get that right from the beginning, our Christian life will never be right. If we brag about how we came to Christ, I was a little bit better than the next guy. He didn't have to do as much to save me. I wasn't as bad as the next guy. When they're as sinful as that person or that girl, then we, haven't, we started off on a shaky foundation, and what's built upon that will never be solid. We simply receive the gift, and we can't take any credit for that gift. All the credit belongs to the giver of that gift. In the same way, if we're to live a life after salvation that is worthwhile, a life where good is accomplished and time is not wasted in the pursuit of worthless endeavors, then we must say, now I'm speaking about after salvation, we must say yes to God and receive the empowerment from him to accomplish his will. And by the way, we won't be able to brag about that either. Because it's still his power. We must receive divine enablement to accomplish what Paul calls the agathos. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. The good for which we will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. It's got to come from divine enablement. So it is a bit humbling to realize that we're incapable apart from outside help, and that outside help being God, to accomplish something that we are ultimately going to be held accountable for. You realize that? I'm going to be held accountable for something that only God can empower me for. Now, you know what I'm going to be held accountable ultimately for is me saying yes. That's all. Receiving the gift. At salvation and even after salvation. Receiving that empowerment. But here's the liberating side of the equation. Help is readily available. We can't do it on our own. And anybody actually ever tried? Can amen that? You can't do it on your own. There's too many Christians out there that are unlovable, that aren't very lovely. Try to love them all on your own, and you're going to quit. You say, I'm not going to love any of them. But with divine enablement, we'll be able to look at our brother or sister in Christ in the way that God looks at them, and we're going to be able to love one another, and we're going to be able to have this unity that Paul's talking about in this letter. So that's liberating. God wants very much for each of us to live a life that will result in a well done at the judgment seat of Christ. He wants that for all of us. He's not going to force it on us. We must be willing to receive this help. That's where I would differ with with extreme Calvinism. I, I don't believe that God forces us to obey him. If he did, he would force all of us to obey him all the time. But when we obey him and say yes, and even that's enabled, not forced, but enabled. When we obey him and say yes, he stands ready and waiting to pour out his strength upon us to enable us to do his will. But I've got to be willing to receive the help. Now, I don't have to be full of angst or worry as to whether or not I'm up to the task. You know why I don't have to be full of angst or worry? As to whether or not I'm up to the task, and you can insert your own name in here too. You know why I don't worry about that? Because I know I'm not up to the task. And neither are you, by the way. We're not up to it. So there's no, there's no point in having a lot of angst. Can I do this? The answer is no, you can't. Not by yourself. But God can. God can. So you, if you take him along with you, 
Who can be against you, Paul says. But by yourself, without him, you leave him at home. It's a lot worse than leaving your American Express card at home. It's not going to happen. You know who I think knew that as well as anybody of his day was Paul himself. He realized that he, first of all, he had no business being saved in the first place, that he was about as unrighteous as anybody was that ever came to Christ. He realized he was saved by grace through faith. He says it twice, by grace, says it twice in his first ten verses of chapter two. He knew he wasn't getting anywhere without divine enablement. So he talks about it way too much. God is willing and he's able to empower us to accomplish his purpose if we will submit our will to his and recognize that just as our salvation was by grace through faith, so also is the Christian walk. It's still grace on God's part. You've heard this before, but I, I think it bears repeating. We can all be reminded of this. The Christian way of life is one of a moment-by-moment -moment reliance upon the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit to guide us, to instruct us, and to empower us to accomplish God's will for us. To guide us, instruct us, to empower us, to accomplish God's will through us and for us. Now, Francis Schaeffer, the late Francis Schaeffer, used to call this idea active passivity. Active passivity. Some people might say that's an oxymoron. Those two words don't go together. But, but hear me out, because I think Schaeffer, not Lewis Ferry Schaeffer, this is Francis Schaeffer. I think he had it right here. We use our will to say yes to God. That's the active part. But God empowers us to do his will. That's the passive part, hence Schaeffer's active passivity. Now, this should not be confused with what I termed in the past park bench Christianity. It, it doesn't mean that I sit like a frog on a lily pad watching the world go by and wait for the world to come to me. That's, that's not it. I don't see any real examples of that in Scripture. In fact, in the Great Commission, our Lord himself says to go. He gives a command to do that. But even there he speaks of empowerment. I must make an active decision to yield, or if you prefer, to submit my life to the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the active part. I must get out of bed. I must make that phone call. I must invite that friend of mine to lunch, maybe prepare that Bible study, spend time in prayer for others, plan the mission trip, or whatever it is God leads us to do. So there's an active part of it. But I must realize all the while, all the while I'm sitting at my desk preparing a a Bible study, or all the while you're making the phone call and driving to see that unbelieving friend of yours at lunch intending to give them the gospel. All the while I'm actively doing that, I must passively realize that the power to do that is not coming from me, it's coming from the Holy Spirit. Now that, again, is liberating. It's extremely liberating. I've, I've been in places, and so have you. I'll just use me as an example. I'll, I'll go to some foreign soil in a totally different culture, Maybe it's the first time I've been to that culture, and I'll have notes prepared, notes that I know work in America, think, you know, that, are, that are structured for an American audience. And really, until I get up there and speak to those people, I have no idea, really, whether they're going to buy this or not. 
And so I start to think, well, what can I do? You know, what, what can I wear? What, how can I make my appearance? You know, how can I introduce this? And all of a sudden it dawns on me, stop it, Bruce. Stop it right there. You're prepared. Now ask for the Spirit's empowerment. Most of you know a man named Gary Horton. Gary's an incredible evangelist. And before I ever went in ministry, I had, I had dinner with Gary here in Houston. And we, we talked about ministry and we talked about the Holy Spirit. And, and Gary gave me some incredible advice. And it's advice that I have, at least to my knowledge, I have utilized before, I ever, before I'd given any public presentation of the Word of God ever throughout the, the entirety of my ministry. So I'm really, really grateful to Gary for this advice. And those of you that know Gary won't be surprised in what it was. He said, Bruce, let me just give you this piece of advice. When you get into ministry and you begin to preach God's word, he said, you go into your study, you ask for God's enablement as you're studying that, you study it, you study it, you prepare, and then you let it go. And then before you get up and preach or teach, you ask that God's word be taught to God's people through God's enabling power for God's glory. And if you do that, everything's going to work out fine. I have to say, if any of you have ever seen Gary Horton in action, so to speak, you know how the Spirit can work through an individual. And he certainly worked through Gary. So, yes, this is not to say that in order to do God's will, it's totally passive in the sense that I'm just going to sit in my office and then hope, hope that the wind blows the book open to the right spot. No, of course not. That's not what I mean by passivity. Yes, we have to take an active approach, but that's Schaefer's active passivity. I, I have to take the active step, but I understand that the empowerment to do it is going to come through God, and that's the liberating part. When you sit down to write a theology, if you try to write it on your own intellect and your own ingenuity, it's not going to work, is it? No matter how smart an individual may be. But if you ask God's help beforehand and realize the empowerment to do that is going to come through him, then what is produced is going to be marvelous because he's the one producing it. I hope that makes sense. I think Schaefer nailed it when he coined that term, active passivity. This strengthening comes from the Holy Spirit, and that's why Paul says, in the inner man in here, that he might grant you to be strengthened by means of the Spirit in the inner man. So it's not talking about primarily physical strength, although that could be a part of it, depending on what your ministry is, but it's primarily related to spiritual strength. And it might be helpful, as we close up this last five or six minutes here tonight, it might be helpful to refer to another one of Paul's letters as we conclude this to help us to get an idea of what Paul's speaking about here. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 is one of the great chapters on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life in all of the New Testament. The first 12 verses of chapter 5 find Paul getting a little worked up, if I could put it that way about the issue of circumcision and salvation and the way that the Galatians were abusing some of these things. Uh, they were, there apparently were some that were teaching them that circumcision was essential for, for salvation. And you know how Paul dealt with that. He wasn't too patient when people tried to add conditions to the gospel. In fact, we see in verse 12 of Galatians chapter 5 a little bit of his testiness. He concludes that section by saying, Would that those who are troubling you, uh, would that they even mutilate themselves? And, and that's... Uh, a fairly graphic way of saying don't just circumcise, but just go ahead and, and uh, do away with the entirety of one's masculinity. So Paul was a little bit worked up when he got to that. But then he moves on to verses 13 and following. 
You see, the Galatians, like the rest of us, were prone to extremes. They were prone to either a licentious extreme or they were prone to a legalistic extreme. Um, one believer interprets liberty as license and thinks he or she can do whatever they want to do without any repercussions. Another believer sees the error of this licentious living and goes to the opposite extreme and becomes a legalist. Neither one is correct, by the way. Legalism is no better than licentiousness. Licentiousness is no better than legalism. But Paul explains that somewhere between license and legalism is true Christian liberty. And that true Christian liberty is going to be undergirded by love. So in verse 13, Paul begins by explaining our calling. We're called to liberty. But his point's going to be that we cannot abuse that liberty and turn it into license. We don't have time to, to do exposition on this. You've heard this passage before. I simply am going to hit some high points to help you remember what you already know and see how it might relate to our passage that we're studying tonight that we might be strengthened in the inner man by means of the Holy Spirit. So he says in verse 13, You were called to a freedom, my brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. When we get back to Ephesians, we're going to see Paul speaking about love a lot. That's going to be the ultimate application of all he's teaching. We're not going to have unity without it. Verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then in verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. See, if love's not functioning, then unity's not going to happen. And he's saying the same thing to the, to the Galatians that he will later to the Ephesians. <coughs> Then in verse 16, but I say walk or live a lifestyle by means of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So what Paul is going to say here is when we live the Christian life, it is going to seem to be one of those either-or propositions. At any one given moment in time, either I am going to be led by my own flesh, which is one of the three sources of temptation to sin that we have, Satan, Satan's system, or the flesh. Either I'm going to be led by my flesh, and if I do that, bad things are going to happen. Or am I, I'm going to submit myself to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and incredibly good things are going to happen. You've heard it before, but let's, let's look at it. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. This is verse 17. The Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Well, this is not exactly parallel. It's reminiscent of Romans 7. But you are, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Now look at verse 19. For the deeds of the flesh, deeds plural, because everybody's got a different kind of old sin nature. One's weak, one, person's, one Christian's weakness is not the same necessarily as another Christian's weakness. For the deeds, plural, of the flesh are evident. I love this part of Paul's teaching here. He says, you don't have to really go around asking people, you think I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, I'm, I'm in the middle of doing this. Uh, I, wonder if that's a, I wonder if the Spirit's leading me to do that. No, no, no. If, if, if what you're doing is any one of these things, you're not being led by the Spirit. It's the flesh. And it's evident. Immorality, impurity, sens sensuality, these are all uh, terms that are related to inappropriate sexual activity. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and, in case Paul didn't mention yours, things like these. So we've all got a different area of weakness of the old sin nature. And that is going, when it manifests, you know it. You know it. Even if you try to fool yourself, I know it. 
when I'm functioning under the flesh. And what I hate the most is, is when somebody really close to me points it out. Because I know she's right. She, did I say? Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, I did. The ones closest to us can spot it as well. And we can try to fool them all day long and act like it's righteous indignation. But no, it's, it's the power of the flesh. And things like these, which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a phrase that's it's so far outside our discussion tonight. We'll have to leave that for another time. But then the, the, then the, the either or comes up in verse 22. But the fruit, and that, that word is singular, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, we could stop there, at least for purposes of this discussion. I want to, I want to pause there. The Spirit's production is love. Now, go back up to verse verse 13. It, our freedom should be used, not for the flesh, but so that we could love one another. Through love, serve one another. The whole law is bound up in this one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, if we function apart from love, we're never going to have unity. Paul's going to bring it up, the subject of love up in Ephesians as well in connection with this prayer, actually. That's part of what he wants us to be able to understand is the depth of Christ's love. But the production of the Spirit. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in the list, and isn't the list beautiful, as opposed to that list we just mentioned? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now here's the difference in the two lists, briefly, very, very briefly. You can, you can do one or the other of several of those ones under the deeds of the flesh. You may say, for example, um, well, let's say you don't have a problem with the first three, immorality, impurity, sensuality, but you've got a real problem with strife and jealousy. You see, all of those are deeds of the flesh, but now the fruit of the Spirit's a package deal. It's, it has an umbrella of love. But listen, if you, if you think you're loving but you have no joy, there's no peace, no patience, no kindness, then it's not the Spirit's fruit being produced from you. This is, this is a package deal, and it's a beautiful package. Love, the, the words even sound better, don't they? Love, joy, peace, patience. You're not going to have patience without love. You're not going to have peace without patience. It's a package deal. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So what Paul does here is he, he demonstrates to us that if we're to produce, let me back, let me back up, I just misspoke. If that, if that behavior is going to be produced through us, it cannot be us that's producing it. I'm talking about real love. Because sometimes people say, well, an unbeliever can love, can't they? They can, but I believe that the unbeliever's love is a shadow of the reality that the believer has when that believer's love is motivated by God the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying that the unbeliever, unbeliever cannot love. Of course they can. But there's, there is something to the believer's love that is produced by the Spirit that produces all these things in a package deal. And that's where the struggle really is. So back to Paul's mention in the, his letter to the Ephesians. I'm either going to be empowered by myself, in which case I'm going to fail in the Christian life. I'm going to fail in my ministry. I'm going to fail in my relationships. If I'm going to rely on my own ingenuity, my own cunning, my own intelligence, or fill in whatever the blank that we want to try to rely upon, it's going to ultimately not be what it was designed to be. 
But if I rely upon God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells me, he indwells everybody in this room. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, he indwells you. And he is the one that's going to empower you to live this life, to produce this fruit. It will be his production through us. The believer cannot accomplish God's purpose apart from divine enablement. That he might grant you, Paul says, according to the riches of his wealth or the riches of his glory. In other words, in accordance with the entirety of his divine infinite perfections. The request again is that you might be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Well, more on this next time.